Second Chronicles chapter 7, we see the fire of God fall from heaven and the glory fill the temple. This morning, I thank God for the fire from heaven. I thank God for the glory of God when it fills the temple. And if there's anything that seems to be lacking in the modern day church, it is the fire from heaven in the glory of God in the house of God. This morning, I do want to eventually preach to you about the fire from heaven, about the glory of God in the temple, and ultimately we'll never see any real work done if we don't have the fire of God present, if we don't have the glory of God uh, revealing to us uh, who He is, there will be very little work done. But in the text that I read to you this morning, we see that the fire that comes from heaven is something that only God can do and that only God can send. The glory of God is something that is only of God. We can't make the glory of God. We can only mimic the glory of God. We can't make the fire of God. We can only mimic the fire of God. And I want to suggest to you that when the fire of God leaves the church and when the glory has departed, that God's people often, rather than repenting and going back to the first things, the steps that are needed so that God will send fire and so that God's glory will show up, that, that what we will often do is create a false fire, a false glory. We'll jump around, we'll shout, we'll dance, we'll get all excited, but there's very little work that's actually done because it's not real fire from heaven and it's not the glory of God. So why did the fire come and why did the glory fill the temple? I want to submit to you that we need to go back a little ways to understand the need for the Ark of the Covenant. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, Solomon has just built a temple. And if you remember, David was going to build the temple. He had the blueprints, if you will. He had the plans to build the temple. But because he was a man of war, he was not able to build it. But something's very important about this temple. Something's very important that we must understand the purpose behind the building of the temple. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, what I just read to you, if you're not familiar with your Bible history, Solomon has just built the temple that his father intended to build. Everything is completed. All of the work is done. The temple is erected. It is finished. It is final. And now it is time, if you will, to have the, the, the ceremony where the Lord honors the building of the temple. But, but Solomon has just completed the great work of building the temple. And it's important we don't miss something this morning. Because we want to jump to the fire. We want to jump to the glory. That's what most people want to deal with. It's, it's, uh, while I'm going an entirely different route, if you were here last week when we looked at Elisha, and the double portion of Elisha, we dealt with the reality that people want to get the victory. They want to get that double portion, but they don't want to do the work and they don't want to have the dedication that it takes to get to that place. Well, in the church, we like the glory. We like to come in and feel good. And listen, 
God does want us to feel good. God does want us to be excited. It should be refreshing when you come into the house of God. But let me say this. If you're not living right with God, if you're living in sin, and you're living a rebellious life that is contrary to the, to the rules that God has laid down for His people, then when you come to the house of God, if the Holy Spirit's in that place, you should feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and you should respond and repent. I've had people tell me, Joplin, you preach too hard and you make people leave bad all the time. Listen, I, can't, I don't make anybody leave bad. If you leave out of this place this morning under conviction, that's your fault, not mine. You remember the rich man that came to Jesus? He said, what must I do to inherit uh, the eternity and, and, the, and, and to, to go into the kingdom of God in heaven? And he said, sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. Hey, that man left sorrowful because he had many possessions. Did Jesus make a mistake? See, it's our response to the Word of God. And this morning, my prayer... I'm really preaching to two people this morning. I'm preaching, number one, to the lost. If you're here this morning and you're lost, listen very carefully this morning. Number two, I'm preaching to those of you that are of the church that want to make a difference in this world. Because if we don't understand the need for the Ark of the Covenant, the law of God, if we just want to jump straight to the fire and the glory, if we just want to jump straight into the victory and the blessings of God, it'll never work. Because there is something that brings about the fire of God. Remember, it's God that sends the fire. Amen? You remember, it's God's glory. God's the only one that can show us His glory. And so... I, if I can't make the fire and I can't make God's glory, what must I do on my part? And let's take a look at this. In First Chronicles, you have to turn there, I'll read it to you. But in First Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 2, the Bible says that King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God and had made preparations to build it, but God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name, because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. Look what David says about the, the, the house of God. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant. Isn't that interesting? It's not just a place of worship. It's not just a place for the people to come and, and lay down their sacrifices. It was a place to house the Ark of the Covenant. I read you Second Chronicles chapter 7. In Second Chronicles chapter 5, it's the same exact ceremony. And in the beginning of the ceremony, the Bible says this, So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated the silver and the gold and all the furnishings, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of God. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel in Jerusalem. Now listen to this. Why? That they might bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore... All the men of Israel assembled with the king at the feast, which was at the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came 
and the Levites took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites, they brought them up. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel were assembled with him before the ark. They were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple, that is the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles of the ark could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they had come out of Egypt. Now, as soon as they bring in the ark, and what I just read to you is completed, Solomon begins to pray. He prays, and I want you to think about this for just a moment. I read to you, the fire comes from heaven, the glory fills the temple. So here is the progression. I want you to get it in your mind. It's important that you can see it. Think about it. It didn't take a long time. They finished this work. They brought the ark up. The ark is in place, and everything's finished. And then Solomon prays, what we read in uh, chapter 6. And then as soon as Solomon is done praying, the fire falls from heaven and the glory of the Lord fills the temple. Why is it important that the ark was brought in? Can I tell you the ark of the covenant is extremely important to God? There are multitudes of places where the ark of the covenant was linked with the presence and the power of God. The ark was found in the Holy of Holies, shielded from the common eye of man. The ark was representative of God's throne among His people. It was a symbol of His presence and power with them wherever the ark went. There's a number of miracles that are recorded because of the presence of the ark. You remember it was when and with the presence of the ark that the waters of the river Jordan divided so that the Israelites could cross over on dry land. It was with the presence of the ark of the covenant that the walls of Jericho fell so that Israel could capture it. We also find in 1 Samuel in chapter 4 that the glory of the Lord departs from Israel why? Listen to this. Talk about the fire and the glory of God. You remember when Eli was on his chair and they come to him and they tell him, your sons are dead. That's pretty bad news, isn't it? Your sons are dead. Israel's been destroyed. But then they make this comment. And the ark of the covenant has been captured. And Eli falls off his chair and dies. And Eli's daughter-in-law names her son after the fact that the Ark of the Covenant was stolen. Ichabod, the glory has departed. You read it, 1 Samuel chapter 4. She said, because 
the Ark of the Covenant was stolen. She named her son Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed. You see, without the Ark of the Covenant, there is no glory of God. Without the Ark of the Covenant, there will never be fire. So the question is, what is the Ark of the Covenant? Why is it so important? I want to suggest this morning, it's not so much the exterior of the Ark of the Covenant, but it is what it housed. And that was the two tablets that Moses brought. The Ten Commandments. The law of God. We are living in a day and a time where the church has deserted the law of God. And before you shut me down this morning, know that I'm going to get to grace. But we must have the law of God in the house of God. It is the law of God that makes each and every one of us stand condemned before God. It was the tablets of stone that were a covenant. They were God's testimony against man. God's testimony against the wickedness of man and His righteousness. It is the law of God that reveals to us that we are all sinners, that we are condemned as sinners apart from God because none of us can keep the law. That law is God's testimony against man. And it is a representation that man has rejected the authority of God. Man has rejected the right standard of living that God has set for us. We cannot depart from the law. The ark is God's testimony. It is His Word to a lost and dying humanity. When we abandon the Word, the full Word, we abandon the mission that God has given us. When we abandon the entire, any part of God's Word, we abandon the mission that God has given the church. And in our And our desire to bring people into the church and to make church sound fun and to make it welcoming to sinners and to make it all-inclusive of everybody, we've decided, and sometimes it's subconscious, sometimes it's the message that we hear over and over and over again and it starts to creep into our own way of evangelism. But when we don't use the whole entire gospel, when we try to skip around the law and we try to just make it all-inclusive of everybody, all of a sudden there's no fire, there's no glory, and so we try to make a false fire, we try to clap it up, shout it up, sing it up, do whatever we need to, and all of a sudden there's not any real conversions in the church. This morning what I'm sharing with you, I'm absolutely convinced, is the reason, not one of the reasons, it is the reason that 80% of the people that are raised up in church, 88%, excuse me, according to George Barna, at 18 years old, leave the church never to return to it again. What I'm sharing with you this morning, I believe, is not a reason. It is the reason that 80% of people who profess Christ as their Savior walk out of the church within one year never to return again. It's because we're missing something. It's because we, we, we throw the fire and the glory out there and we try to appeal to the, to the 
to to the uh, the part of man that that, that uh, everything sounds good and everything sounds great, and there, and people don't realize they need to repent of their sins. We cannot abandon the law of God. And without the law of God, friends, you can preach grace all that you want and you can preach love all that you want, but until you take the grace of an almighty God and you compare it to the law and the standards and that which separates us from Him, His grace doesn't mean much. And His love doesn't mean much. If we don't understand the wrath that is to come because of the law, In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus told them to go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. All things. It is God's Word that changes lives. It is His testimony, now listen to this, His testimony against us, that reveals to us His holiness and our lack thereof. You know why people don't want to hear the, 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 the reality that they're condemned before God if they don't repent of their sins and accept Jesus as Lord and Savior? Because we don't want to see ourselves as unholy. I said, I believe Wednesday night, uh, I don't even know how we got on it, but most people can admit that what I've done is wrong. Most people don't have a problem saying the sins that I've committed were wrong. It was wrong for me to tell that lie. It was wrong for me to steal that thing. It was wrong for me to hurt this person. Most people don't have a problem with admitting that what I've done is wrong. But they have a very hard time admitting that I'm wrong. The reason that I did what I did was because I am wrong. Not only what I've done is wrong... But I am wrong. You see, this is the message of the Bible. That we are wrong. We are condemned before God. Not only what we've done is wrong, but we are wrong. And that holiness of God, that the, His law, His, His uh, word and testimony against us, it reveals to us His perfectness, His holiness, and the standard of living that He expects us to live. It not only reveals that in His glory, it reveals to us our lack thereof. And if we're not careful, we find ourselves preaching a message that says you're a good person, but Jesus will make you a better person. Can I tell you something this morning? If you're not saved, if you haven't turned from your sins and you're not following the Lord, you're not a good person. And the Bible says you're an enemy of God. That's what it says. You're His enemy. And there is an eternal hell that is yours. And if you don't repent of your sins and find Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you will spend eternity in that place because you're not a good person. You are an evil and wicked being in the sight of God. And you will stand guilty on that day. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to preach that. I didn't want to hear it either. But it is the truth. And friends, when we get a hold of it, trust me, trust me, the message of grace has a whole lot more impact when you have the reality of the condemnation that's ours and that is ahead if we don't find grace. This is why people trample on God's grace. We think God owes us something. 
We think the reason that God sent His Son to die is so that He could bless me with unlimited snacks and things and games and fun. And He just thought I was such a great person that He wanted to make me happy the rest of my life. See, now all of a sudden it's about me. And God's just lucky, lucky that I let Him bless me. That's the attitude of a lot of people. You say, that's not my attitude. Well... We cannot abandon the Word of God. We can't abandon the law. And I want to show you something. In Proverbs chapter 7, if you want to turn there, I'll be there for a little while. In Proverbs chapter 7, you see, without the law, we make false converts. We're trying to convert people without it. And we are guilty as a nation of leading thousands to false to a false experience that lacks the convicting power of the Holy Ghost over sin. And this is why people are leaving the church at record numbers. In Proverbs chapter 7, we find a picture of the church today. And she is a harlot, a prostitute. Look with me at Proverbs chapter 7. Notice in verse 1 it says, My son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commandments and live, and my law as the apple of your eye. Would you consider the law of God the apple of your eye? Do you love the law of God? Most of us hate it. Most people refuse to speak of it or to even preach on it But God said, keep the law as the apple of your eye, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart, say to wisdom, you are my sister. You know, the book of Hosea says, my people perish for lack of understanding, lack of wisdom. If we don't know the Word of God, if we don't grab hold of the law of God, of the commandments of God, we too will surely perish. But notice he says that if you do these things and call understanding your nearest kin, that they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. Can I tell you that in Proverbs, when you read of the prostitute, when you read of the immoral woman, you will almost always read before you get to the prostitute, before you get to the harlot, you will almost always read, keep my law and my commandments. If you will treasure them in your heart, it will keep you from that woman. And that prostitute, that harlot in in the book of Proverbs, throughout the entire book, is a reference almost always to the false church. It is a reference to false doctrine. This is why God's Word and God's law, it keeps us from that false doctrine. And I want to submit to you this morning, and I'm going to do my best to show you through my studies why I believe that that, that even in the church, the Christian church of our nation, and and I'm going to 
If I have time, I'm going to show you why I believe it's got into Pentecostalism. It's got into the Southern Baptist denomination. It's got into to the Lutheran. It's everywhere in a different form or different facet. But we have allowed the harlot to creep her way into the church to twist and change our doctrines. And we are preaching and sometimes unintentionally and teaching the message of the harlot of Proverbs chapter 7. The immoral woman. Notice that her goal, I'm not going to read you all of Proverbs chapter 7, there's 27 verses, but look at verse 25. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house, see I told you this is a reference to the false church, her house is the way to hell. Descending to the chambers of death. The harlot is about destroying people. But God is about saving people. Can I tell you that when the church has lost its passion to win the lost, When we have lost our drive and when our focus is anything other than bringing people to Jesus Christ, we have lost our way. Everything that we do, every step that we take, every breath that we breathe, every word that we speak should have within it the ultimate goal of sowing the seed of God, sowing the Word of God, and bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. That is why we are here. And when we bypass that and we're simply trying to build a church or we're trying to bring in numbers or we're trying to get the latest thing so that everybody thinks we have the latest thing and now all of a sudden people are coming, we have forgotten that our goal is to reach and win the lost for the sake of Christ. And we can't do that, my friends, without the whole gospel. The Harlot Church isn't concerned about lost people. She's only concerned about prosperity, about growth, about numbers, about power. Ray Comfort said that he who hasn't the compassion to reach out to those who are still in their sins is probably still in the same predicament. He who hasn't the compassion to reach out to those who are still in their sins probably still in the same predicament. Charles Spurgeon said, Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you are not saved. Be sure of that. The saving of souls, if a man has once gained love to a perishing sinners, and his blessed Master will be an all-absorbing passion to him, it will carry him away that he will almost forget himself in the saving of others. He went on to say that if sinners be damned, at least let them leap over to hell, into hell, over our bodies. If they will perish, at least let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Thank God for that great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Is that the message that you give? Do you really care about lost souls? Do you really care about the people in your family, your friends, and your workplace that are going to spend an eternity in hell? 
The late 20th century has gospel has degenerated into merely a means of self-improvement, self-esteem, and self-indulgence. She has become the harlot of Proverbs chapter 7. The harlot is concerned with growth. She's concerned with numbers. She's concerned with power and possessions rather than with the fact that, that souls must repent or they will perish. Is this a New Testament principle? Joplin Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, verse 1 and verse 3, Repent unless you perish. Repent unless you perish. There is no salvation without repentance. If you have not repented of your sins this morning, friend, you are headed on a one-way track to hell, and you had better repent before it's too late. For it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. You must repent to be saved. The harlot, her desire is for pleasure and for money. Isn't it amazing? And I don't mean to cut down preachers. I'm not. God knows my heart. But it is amazing how the messages that really make it big and how the pastors, that not all of them, and, and, and I'm, I want to be careful not to paint every televangelist with a broad brush. But the majority of people that get all the airtime are always preaching about how you can become rich if you'll just give to their ministry. How if you'll just sow a seed, which remember, if our goal is to win the lost and the Word of God is the seed of God, then the harvest that we should reap is souls. It's not all about me sowing a seed so I can get more money. That is a stupid and crazy doctrine. And there's a lot of preachers that have been wrapped up in it. Just give me more money and God will bless you. You send me a hundred, God will send you a thousand. You send me 777 and God will send you 7,770. And these guys get airtime. You see, the harlot church appeals to your natural needs, your natural wants, your natural desire to have more, to be successful more and more and more. And we have allowed that voice to creep itself into the church. Her wisdom, as James says, is earthly, sensual, and devilish. She preaches that gain is godliness. That gain is godliness. That if you really want to see if you're living right for God, and if God is blessing you, that you will have more than all of your neighbors, that your neighbors will be able to look at your extremely expensive house, your six cars, your three-year-old's Royces, and then they'll know that God has blessed you, and they'll want what you have. See, that's the message of the harlot church. She preaches that gain is godliness, and her God is money. She manifests the works of the flesh rather than the fruit of the Spirit. The harlot church will even pass by the bleeding stranger on the road to Jericho, all under the pretense of doing the will of God. And in fact, she'll take it one step further than that Levite did. She'll even stop on the way to reach in that bleeding man's pocket. She'll pull out his wallet, take his money, put his wallet back in, and then all leave under the name of God's glory. It breaks my heart when I watch some of these televangelists 
trying to take the last dollar of some of the poorest people in this country all under a false lie that if they'll give their last dollar, God's going to bless them beyond any uh, possible imagination. And you know what? We don't even know if they're saved or not. There's no preaching to their souls. Can I tell you that the promises and the blessings of God, they're not for sinners. If you're not a child of God, those promises aren't yours, friend. You can pray all day long. I've had sinners that are that, that, that uh, try to tell they're not serving God. They have never repented of their sins. He is not their Lord. And they say, well, I'm praying for this. I'm praying for that. I'm thinking, well, that's a worthless thing to do. You ought to watch TV. You might get something more out of it. God, the first prayer that God will ever hear from you, sinner friend, this morning is, God, forgive me. I turn from my sins and I make you my Lord and Savior. You are His enemy. What a foolish thought that if I have a need, I'll just call the people I'm at war with and see if they'll give it to me. What a crazy, ridiculous thought. You are an enemy of God this morning if you haven't repented of your sins. You see, the doctrine that we're preaching, that we're hearing, it is so close to the harlot message of Proverbs chapter 7. She is deluded into thinking that God smiles at her harlotry because she brings pleasure to man. Look at verse 14 of chapter 7. I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows. The harlot church thinks that God smiles at her idolatry, at her harlotry, at her wayward way of living, because at least she pays her vows, and at least she brings happiness to men. She thinks that the end justifies the means. That because people are happy, and because people have found a self-help way to become better people, that God smiles on her idolatry, that God smiles on her riotous living, that God smiles upon her harlotry way of teaching and preaching, she is deluded into thinking that God's ultimate desire is her happiness. To the harlot, that is God's ultimate desire, her happiness. She preaches that Jesus came to make us happy. And therefore, since He came to make us happy, He will happily overlook her perverted and lawless living. You see, there's a reason that we have to have the law of God. There's a reason that we have to preach the law of God. Because, listen, it is amazing how sneaky this harlot can be. You know what? God does want us to be happy. And God does want to give us the desires of our hearts. And God does promise to bless us. Those are all things that are true. But who are they true to? God's children. And you know, the Bible says that you must be born again. And it says that once you've been born again, the old things pass away and all things become new. You see, you get a new nature, you get a new heart. God said, I'll place within them a new heart. He doesn't just change your heart. He gets rid of that old heart and gives you a new heart. So if you haven't had that born-again experience, if you haven't seen yourself as a wretched, filthy being in the sight of God, condemned to an eternal and literal hell, then God's not going to give you your desires. And when I preach that message to a host of lost people... 
Come to the church. God will make you happy. He's going to give you all your desires and all of the things that are important to you. It's not true. He'll give you those things once you're born again and He changes your desires. But the desire of the saint of God, the desires of the child of God, the things that make the child of God happy and peaceful are different from the things of the world. And when we preach to the world, God's going to make you happy. God's just going to give you all of your desires. She believes the lie. This is why 80% of the people leave the church. Hey, that sounds like a great deal, doesn't it? I mean, I'm so important to God. He just wants to make me happy. And I can make twice the income I was making before if I just give a little bit of extra money. And I'm going to have this and this and this. What a deal. Sure, I'll believe in God. All I have to do is say these words. Woohoo! That's easy. I can say those words. Oh, and mean it in my heart. Okay. Well, I'll mean it in my heart. And so I say the words, and I mean it in my heart, and I come, and I sit down, and I wait, and I wait, and I wait for my blessing. I'm waiting for God to bless. I'm waiting for God to give me that new car. I'm waiting for that double raise that that evangelist preached. And time goes by, and all of a sudden, guess what? I find out, well, this was a lie. This was a sham. I'm out of here. You see, their desires were never changed. We're preaching to a people who are still in their darkness about the blessings of being in the light. Instead of preaching to them the reality they're in their darkness until they come to the light, they're going to split hell wide open. It is the message of the harlot. It appeals to the dark side of man. Her outward appearance is attractive. But it's only skin deep. Her standards are the standards of Egypt. Verse 16, I have spread my bed with tapestry. I've colored coverings of Egyptian, with colored coverings of Egyptian linen. Her standards are the standards of the world. It is amazing how many denominations are trying to look like the world, act like the world, sound like the world, to trick people into coming into church, build some friendship with them, and then six months down the road, try to tell them that, look, we're the same as you are. We just believe in Jesus. Jesus is a fun thing. He's a fun guy. He's your homeboy. Jesus isn't your homeboy, friends. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And He's coming back, if you will, on the clouds of glory. And one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's not your homeboy. And if you even speak of Him that way, I would wonder, my friend, if you even know Him. That's the message of the church. It's crazy. We have been drawn in by the harlot of Proverbs chapter 7 and we've liked her message and we're giving it out because it brings people in. But what good does it do if sinners come and they're still sinners when they leave? We need true conversions. We need the fire of God and the glory of God in the house of God. But notice the Ark of the Covenant had to come in first. To remind us of His holiness and our lack thereof. She claims that you can be a friend of God and of the world. That under the banner of love, God is a friend of the world. But James chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Whosoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I thank God that James made it so clear. I don't even need to interpret that, do I? I don't even need to tell you what it means. That's what it says. He that is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. She's not faithful and true. In contrast, we picture her next to the true church that the Bible pictures as a chaste virgin. The true church is not boisterous and loud like the harlot, but her beauty is like that of 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4. Rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. You hear that? The beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. The heart of the harlot church is not after God. And just like King Saul, she has a rebellious spirit. The harlot church has a rebellious spirit. And I'm sure that if you've been in the church any length of time, you've come up against rebellious people. I can live how I want to live. Are you perfect? Well, no, I'm not perfect. Okay, then, don't talk to me about it. This is just my sin. This is what I do. This is how I live. The heart of the harlot is rebellious. She refuses to submit to authority. She is not like the chaste virgin of the church that the Bible calls as quiet and meek. And we live in a day and time, and I'm terrified to think about what the future holds because we live in a rebellious generation. Our children are rebellious as they've ever been. Sometime about 10, 15 years ago, parents quit raising kids and kids started raising up parents. And our nation is in danger and it's found itself creeping into the church. This morning, can I tell you, we must be careful because it can often even creep into our own way of evangelism. It can find itself creeping into the way that we share the Gospel. I'm trying to tell, if you will, all of a sudden we're trying to tell people the reason they need to get into the church is because of how God just wants to make them happy all the time. I'm guilty of it. Can I tell you that? I've tried to trick people to come into church. Because that's a lot easier to say than the truth. The brother, I just love you enough to tell you that if you don't turn from your sins, you've got an eternal hell to come your way. And there's hope for you in Jesus Christ. He's paid the price. All you've got to do is trust and believe and turn from your sins and follow Him. He's paid the price in full. That's the truth of the Gospel. The harlot church is rebellious and she appeals to that rebellious nature of man. She has the gall, and this is this thing, it makes my blood boil. She has the gall to use the adulteration of the holy anointing oil to perfume the bed of her harlotry. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. We find that that is the holy anointing oil in Exodus 30 and verse 23. Just as this harlot has the gall to perfume the bed of her harlotry with the holy anointing oil, so too does the harlot church have the audacity to adulterate the anointing of the Holy Spirit all for the purpose of telling men and appealing to the natural senses of men that God wants to bless them. 
I've been so many places, a better way to put it, I've watched so many things. And I've been places too. Where there wasn't a lick of the Holy Spirit in that place that people could talk about. I've been places where people just under the banner of, God told me so. It's the Holy Spirit. I'm hearing from this and that. And it's all about them. It's all about man. It's all about appealing to that carnal nature of man. And that harlot church has the goal to use the, 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 the Holy Spirit in an adulteration, if you will, something that is not really the Holy Spirit, but they claim that it is, all for the purpose of trying to make men think that it's of God. This is why she has an attraction to the carnal mind. Like the sweet perfume of the harlot, she seduces his natural senses, promising peace, joy, love, and happiness. She preaches the ear-tickling gospel of grace, which permits the sinner to think that he can have one foot in the kingdom of God and another foot in the world. It is the gospel of compromise, and it doesn't warn that whosoever is a friend of God, a friend of the world, is an enemy of God. It does not warn that without holiness, no man will see the Lord. She needs to hear the message of James chapter four: Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Repent and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. That message is a reality for about 80% of the people in this nation that call themselves by the name of Christ. Who think they're saved but aren't. To the harlot church, the law is totally irrelevant. She has no knowledge of sin. In Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 20, she says, Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats, wipes her mouth, and says, I have done no wickedness. I have not done anything wrong. The only thing that matters to her is pleasure, power, pomp, prestige, size, and success. Her gospel is fostered in nothing more than a life enrichment program. You know the first thing that Jesus said to Paul? I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. You know what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3? Endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And then in 2 Timothy 3.12, All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Did you hear that word of God? All who live godly in Jesus Christ shall suffer persecution. Is that the gospel of the harlot church? Absolutely not. It also says that we enter the kingdom of God through much tribulation in Acts 14.22. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 3, the Bible says that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. We are appointed unto afflictions. You see, this is not the message that the harlot church throws out there. The promise of peace of prosperity, of the joy of the Lord, is that God gives us those things even through this life that we have to live. 
Most people get saved and they think everything's going to be different. Everything is different when you really get born again in your spirit and in your relationship with God. But one thing you find out, the world doesn't change. And you're still in the world. You're just not of it anymore. People still lie. People still cheat. People still steal. 80% of the church isn't really saved anyways. So people who profess to be Christians are going to act like sinners because they're still sinners. And you find out that all of a sudden life still happens. God's promise of peace is peace in the midst of the storm. It's not that He's going to remove every storm that comes your way. His promise is that He'll meet your needs, not that He'll give you all your wildest wants. And when He really changes your heart, you will have the heart of God. You will desire the things that God desires. You will abhor the things that God abhors. You will want the things that God wants. And you will cling to those things. And if your heart has not been changed, and I'm preaching to you that God just wants to give you all your desires, I'm lying to you. No, He doesn't. You're His enemy. But He loved you enough to send His Son. You might say, well, where's the gospel of love? Boy, this is hard stuff. I wish I was at the lake this morning and I could just get this on CD and fast forward through it. What about God's love? Almost every reference in the New Testament of God's love deals with the death of Jesus Christ. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated His love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, is that love? Yes, it is. This is God's kind of love. Not the kind of love of the world that says you can live however you want to live, do whatever you want to do. Much more than having been justified by His blood. We shall be saved from what? Wrath. There is wrath to come for those who are not saved. That's the Word of God. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, how? Through the death of His Son, how much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by His life. John 15 and 13. Greater love has no man than this, than what? He lay down His life for His friends. Ephesians 5, 2. And we walk in love as Christ also has loved us. And what? Given Himself for us as an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You see how in the New Testament when we read about love, it deals with the death of Jesus Christ? God loved me, so He sent His Son to die and to bleed and to pay the penalty of all my sins, to take them upon His shoulders and to bleed and die so that I might go free. That's how He showed me that He loved me. Not by giving me a new Cadillac. Not by giving me a house bigger than my neighbor's. Not by giving me all of my worldly and natural and, 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 and selfish desires. He showed me, loved me, By sending His Son to pay the price so that I wouldn't have to spend eternity in hell. Now that's love. 
That's real love. Can you see this morning, church? I've just barely had the time to paint a small part of the picture. How we have allowed that message of the harlot of Proverbs chapter 7 to creep itself in. You know, 1 John chapter 2 tells us that they stumble in their darkness, but they do not know where they're going. They don't even know they're stumbling. Those that are in darkness, they don't think they're in darkness. I didn't think I was in darkness before I came to the light. Neither did you. And you may have never come to the light this morning and you're still in darkness and you don't know. You're just stumbling in it. You don't think you are, but you're stumbling in darkness and you don't know. But one of the interesting things about the Bible is that darkness represents Satan's kingdom and the power of Satan, wherein light represents Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 and verse 3, In Him was light, and that life was the light of men, and the light shines where? In darkness, and the darkness does not, did not comprehend it. You see, darkness is the opposite of light. And spiritually speaking, Darkness almost always represents the pride and the selfish nature of man. Think about uh, uh, Satan when he tried to seduce Eve. And he said, you can't trust God. There's actually more. And if you'll just do this thing and trust me, it's going to elevate you to another place. And Eve's entire motivation for sinning against God was selfishness. She believed it would further herself. She didn't really care about the serpent. She didn't really care about God. And she really didn't care too much about Adam. It was all selfishness. It's all about me. You see, that's the world that we live in before we come to Christ. It's all about me. And darkness is selfishness. Christ, in contrast, came as the light. And He modeled a perfect life of being selfless. What did He say? If any man want to follow me, he must take up his cross and deny himself. Jesus was willing to leave the splendor of heaven and to clothe Himself in human flesh. He humbled Himself. He lived that perfect and selfless life. He taught us that at the Last Supper as He humbled Himself. He said, if I, being your Lord, take on the nature of a servant and I wash your feet, then you too should be servants. And His entire message was a message of being selfless for the purpose of serving God. It is the exact opposite of the message of darkness, which is all about you, 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 and you. And can you see that if we're preaching to sinners, a message about you, 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 really we're appealing to their darkness. We're appealing and trying to compel them to come to God on the grounds of selfish reasons. So you can have more. So you can be better blessed than your neighbor. So that you can have a new car and a new job and this and this and this and whatever it may be. We're actually using darkness. We're appealing to their natural dark side to try to bring them to Christ. It's no wonder it doesn't work. It might work for a brief time as far as bringing them into the church and they actually fill a seat. But then just like the other 80% of people, it takes about a year before they realize, well, this didn't work. I'm in the same old life I was before. God didn't give me that new car that preacher promised. That extra tenfold gift didn't come back in. Maybe God doesn't really want to bless me at all. 
And I tell you this morning, God does want to bless you. He wants to bless you with the greatest gift you've ever received, and that's the forgiveness of your sins. And if you want to know if God loves you, my friend, don't look around to see whether or not you're laid off, whether or not you've got a, a, a new home, whether or not this or that. If you want to know if God loves you, all that you really need to do is simply look to the cross. You'll see love there. Look to the cross and see the one man that was willing to plead and die and give his life on Calvary's hill so that you could go free, so that you could spend an eternity in heaven with God because therein is love. That's real.